0: This is a recording made in the Chapel of the Open Book at the dinner hour service and we are still looking at Genesis chapter 2. You may remember that last time we met together we were considering the question of what was the penalty? What was the penalty? Today we are looking at another aspect. What was the immediate consequence of the consciousness of guilt? I couldn't help but notice, although you mustn't um, run away with this, that the word guilt in the Hebrew language, if spelled in English letters, is A-S-H-A-M. Nothing whatever to do with the word ashamed. But isn't it suggestive? The moment they were conscious of guilt, they were ashamed. Now their concern, you notice, in the Garden of Eden, was to cover their nakedness. And God's concern was to cover their sin. Now there's all the difference in the world between covering up and being covered by God. And that's our thought today. I'm going to read a part of Psalm 32 because it is a divine comment and I I don't suppose even you would object to have the inspired comment rather than me speak. Anyhow, here goes. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night my, thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. See how? that means, now look at this, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and by the iniquity have I not hid, I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. So he says, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. I was very wrong to cover it up myself. When I acknowledged it, then my sin was removed. So you see, we've got to distinguish between what we do with regard to our sin and what God does. There's a passage in Proverbs, He that covereth his sins, shall not prosper. And yet, blessed is the man whose sins are covered. You see, the tendency of us all, the moment we are discovered to be guilty, is to hide and to cover up. Well, that's disastrous. If there is a divine purpose, if God intends there shall be a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, there can be no disguised and covered-up sin. It's got to be dealt with. Otherwise it would be a menace for the whole of eternity. Our first parents, of course, were innocent. They were not righteous. Righteousness is a positive thing. They were innocent. And they were trapped. And they hid themselves. They did the very things that even children do. Now, what's going to happen to them? How is God going to deal with them? Shall we look at another comment? on the same attitude, rather than me give you, in the book of Zechariah, that's right up near the end of the Old Testament, and chapter 3. It's interesting to know that there was a high priest who was in this predicament. Satan was dealing with the high priest as well as with our first parents. He's got no sensitiveness, the evil one. Zechariah 3, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. The Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuked thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuked thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. I don't suppose you could have seen the filthy garments with your natural eye. They would have looked very beautiful. But this is God's estimate. Even the high priest of Israel filthy garments. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. There again, the whole thing's transacted. Something must be taken away. God didn't put thee Imputed righteousness of His beloved Son, even by proxy, over the rags and over the aprons and over the fig leaves—they were stripped away. The one who wrote that hymn, you remember, he was—he had this very much in mind. Naked, come to Thee for grace. Oh yes. You see, there's a twofold aspect in the work of Christ. Forgiveness takes away. But to take away sin leaves you black. But positive righteousness is needed to stand in the presence of a holy God. So he takes away the iniquity, and then he gives you a righteous standing. Well, that righteous standing is something you have never merited. So, we remember, if you go on with that Psalm 32, but we won't, we'll go on with the Apostle Paul's own use of it in the Epistle to the Romans. He not only speaks about blessed is the man, whose sins are covered. But he adds another thought, so we'll get that from Romans, the fifth chapter. Romans, the fifth chapter. I'm sorry, the fourth chapter. He says, um, verse 6, Even as David also Describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputed righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blesses the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. You see, the word impute comes, or the word reckon, or the word count, as it is translated in this chapter. Now, what's happened to sin then? What has happened to it? If you can't put it away, What's happened to it? All oh, you know, don't you? Surely he hath borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. In other words, you need a substitute. You see, this word cover has to do justice for two very opposite things. Even Job speaks about Adam. He says, if I've covered my transgression as Adam, let thistles grow instead of wheat and copper instead of barley. You see, that's Genesis, he knows. So whatever we do, friends, do remember this. That you cannot hide sin from God. But here's the blessed alternative. He says he can deal with it so even God cannot find it. Would you believe it? You know, you read in the scriptures, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. He says, the psalmist says, if I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the earth, when I get there, he's waiting for me. And yet God says, when he deals with your sin and mine, in the person of my Saviour, they're cast behind his back. He cannot see them. Well, that's a figure of speech. They are so completely gone that God says, I can't see them. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions. So you see, how foolish it is for any one of us to cover up. Because it'll only be stripped bare. It'll only be against us but if we acknowledge in his presence our fault and our frailty, he is righteous to forgive us our sins. And then he gives us the assurance of our standing in Christ that the righteousness we need to stand in his presence will never be attained by our struggling, but it is by him who bore our sin that he might justify many and provide a robe of righteousness for those who just stood before him in filthy rags. I'm going to turn to that passage because it's a comment on this same subject and that is the prophet Isaiah chapter 61 Shot. sorry chapter 64 this is the the people of Israel now uttering their confession (coughs) Isaiah 64 Verse 6, but we all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses. Now that's a Hebraism. You don't use the plural in ordinary English and speak of righteousnesses. But in the Hebrew, they very often put a thing in the plural, not to make a plural of it, but to magnify it. The voice of our brother's bloods with an S on the end. That's life's blood. The holy places is not holy places, there's only one most holy place, that's what it means, the holy place of all holy places. So all our righteousnesses, the very best you can think of, what are they in that searchlight of God's presence? All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Some of you, if you were here on the Saturday meeting, will remember that our brother Foster, in reviewing the witness, reminded us that on the young people's beating I took the words for the children, rags or robes. Well, I'm taking it for older children, but they all need it, don't they? All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And then we all do fade as a leaf. Don't you see? That's a harp back almost without thinking of it to Genesis. Now, what our first parents did was to make girdles or aprons They didn't cover themselves. They just suddenly ceased to be innocent because that's what sin does. That's what sin does. But that was going to fade as a leaf. That wasn't going to last. And God stripped it. Now what did God provide? Now I stopped in the middle of all this and turned up the Hebrew and I looked at all sorts of conjugations of the one verb all for your benefit, friends, how good I am, but it was for me own. And when I discovered the exact way in which God spoke, I found that there are seven occurrences of the verb to make in Genesis 1 and 2. And six of them are what God made. He made the heavens and earth. He made a helpmeet for man. And then there's the last one of all, number seven, After he said his work was finished, he starts all over again. And the first thing God is said to have made after creation was finished was he made coats of skins. The very first thing God did was to start a redemptive work. The creative work was finished. You remember? We found it in Genesis 2. The work was finished. And then sin enters into the story. And the whole of the Bible now is the rectification and putting right of that which sin did wrong. And the first act is the act of God again. Unfortunately, man acted first, but it was of no avail. The first positive act is God took away the filthy garments. He took away the aprons. He took away that which merely covered up. And he gave them coats of skin. Now, can you see the implication of this? You don't kill a tree if you pluck a leaf off of it. You don't kill a tree if you take the fruit off. But you could not possibly, unless you're going to work an astounding miracle, you could not use skins to make coats without sacrificing the animal's life. And the very first thing that God has done, the very first thing that he made, after creation was finished, was coats of skins that necessitated the sacrifice of an animal. And here you've got the insistence in the very first act of God, That comes right out through the whole Bible that without the shedding of blood is no remission. Some people object to that very severely. And the latest translation in the, where it says in 1 John 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and put it round the other way, He's the remedy. Well now I take the remedy, but the propitiation is not to me at all. The propitiation is that God may be just as well as justifying me. He doesn't forgive you and me as a kind parent who pats us on the head. He forgives us because we are justified in the very law court of God. Now that means something has been done with our sin, not covered it up, but brought it right out. Laid it upon an innocent substitute, who voluntarily bore it away himself, so that when God saves me, his holiness and his righteousness is by no means compromised. Now, that doesn't go down well with modern people. They want to eliminate the sacrificial, the propitiation, and all that out of it, and merely make God a very kind father. Well, he is a kind father, but he's more. Otherwise, if there was any other way which sin could be dealt with, do you you believe that he would not have used it? God himself had only one way, and he took it. He that spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? But he spared him not. It was something that God did that was almost beyond dreams. And there it is written. There's not one part of the Bible that leaves out the emphasis that the wages of sin is death and that the only way it can be cancelled is by the death of another. So you you read the Law of Moses and it's embedded in it. You read the the, the whole books of the Prophets and they say the same thing. You get to the Psalms and the other writings, you come into the New Testament, the Gospels, the Acts, the Epistles, and the Book of the Revelation, they all say unto him that loved us, and loosed us from our sins in his own blood. Now this is going to be emphasized in the next chapter, as we go on in Genesis. Outside the Garden of Eden, two men are going to go through the same thing again. And the one thing that divided Cain and Abel, was not merely their own attitude to things generally, but their attitude to one thing particularly, coming into the presence of God and recognising your need of a saviour, Abel, coming into the presence of God and feeling you'll get away with it, Cain. And ever since that, there's been two gospels. They've all divided up into two. Either something in my hand I bring or nothing in my hand I bring. Or may we realise from these early statements in the Scriptures that instead of setting them aside, even as the head of the National Church has just done, as I read in the newspaper, got no place for Adam and Eve and all that. Nobody believes that now, apparently. It looks as though it's incipient. And if we set that aside, we're doing despite to the Word of God and the work of Christ, which it foreshadowed. Now, I think our time is practically up. It does go quickly. Uh, but uh, I would remind you that there's no gate crashing with regard to this. How camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? It's provided for you. You can't get by without. And there's no possibility of going in with patches. For the scripture declares that you put a patch on, it tears it and you look worse. So don't patch your rags, friends. If you feel a need of a saviour, come. And you can even take the words of the hymn if you don't know how to go just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God. That's his title, sacrificial. O Lamb of God, I come.